Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Both Sides of the Stethoscope podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Colby Salerno, and I'm here with your other host, Dr. Aline Gregosian. Hi, everyone. Thank you to everybody who's been waiting and still listening. We see that there's still downloads happening. Um, so we're really happy that you guys stuck with us while we took some time off. And we're really happy to be back. Yeah, it's been a couple crazy months, which I feel like we keep saying every so often here. But the fact that like we were both in fellowship and trying to do this is like crazy enough. So yeah, it's definitely been a lot harder than I think we thought at times. But hopefully we we feel like we're in a good place right now to uh, put out a lot of more new episodes. So hopefully every couple of weeks, you'll be seeing a new episode drop just for some life updates of where we're at now. So I'm now in my second year of cardiology fellowship. Before I know it, I'll be applying for my advanced heart failure and transplant fellowship very soon, uh, which is very exciting. That's um, super exciting. And then Aline, it sounds like you are hitting the attending world or yeah. do you have other plans? So I just finished my fellowship. So um, just for those of you who like want to understand a little bit more about what it's like. So we do med school first and then we do something called residency and then we do fellowship. And then um, like Kobe's going to go on, he's going to do another fellowship after that. So like our years of training before coming in attending doctor, it takes like years and years. So I just finished my fellowship like about a month ago. Um, and I am currently taking some time off while I look for jobs. So I'm back in California and it's been nice just having like, some time off with my parents and trying to figure out what I want to do with my life exactly. And here I am. Yeah, which is really exciting. Um, yeah. Very excited to finally finish fellowship, but I'll just <laughs> keep adding on. <laughs> I'm just a glutton just, for punishment. <laughs> I know. It's just like two more years left after like, you know, 14 years of school. So it's fine. <laughs> exactly. But um, it's going to be really, really exciting to when taking care of tons of transplant patients, which has kind of always been the goal. Yeah. That's going to be great. So what we wanted to do tonight in one of our first episodes back is we recently on our social media platforms had asked listeners to give us questions and recommendations for future episodes. So we're going to answer some questions tonight. And then uh, we are thankful for the listeners who gave us great ideas for future episodes. We got a lot of awesome questions. And so somebody asked, it was actually Alyssa who asked, uh, small transplant centers versus big transplant centers. And although it wasn't an exact question, we're going to do our best to answer it. We took this question as her asking if she would choose a large transplant center or a small transplant center, or maybe what the differences are between the two. Mm -hmm. I think that's difficult to answer having, you know, only been at the transplant centers that we either worked at or got our transplants at. Yeah. And there are tons across the country. In terms of how I would decide on a transplant center, though, first and foremost for me was location. Um, I ended up, when I was getting my heart transplant, being listed at two separate transplant centers. And I ended up at the time where it was to the point where I needed to get hospitalized and wait in the hospital for my transplant I chose the transplant center closer to home. Very, very grateful I did, given that I ended up in the hospital for six months. It would have been extremely difficult on my family for me to have been in a hospital for six months while they were far away. Um, they were only like a 25 to 30 minute drive away, which was really amazing. I think with my insight into the medical 
world now and if location was not a problem, I don't think it would be the size of the center. I think it would be the outcomes at mm -hmm. the center. And all of this is actually available on the internet. UNOS, um, the major um, body that oversees all transplants, has on their websites, if you, you know, do your Google searching and get into it, they will tell you how many transplants are done at each center and the outcomes at these centers. And I think that's something that I would probably take into consideration. Yeah, so big versus small doesn't matter as much as outcomes, basically. Um, and then ultimately keep in mind that like if you're at a transplant center, it's probably already a larger academic center to begin with. Um, and and they have to be certified to be transplant centers. So they know what they're doing. So uh, I don't want anybody to think that like just because a hospital is bigger or smaller, it's not as good. Um, there are plenty of small hospitals that are good at some things. There are plenty of big hospitals that are good at some things. So it's not so much size. It's it's more so um, outcomes and doing your own research and seeing what's most important for you. I think that's an excellent point, too. I th almost every single heart transplant center in the United States is at a pretty large academic center. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to find any community hospitals doing heart transplants. Yeah. Um, so I think for the most part, if a hospital does heart transplants, you're probably in, in good in hands. In good hands, exactly. Uh, there's another one here by MadFlick02. Um, she asked, as someone on immunosuppressants, do you worry about seeing sick patients? 100%. I think in the time of COVID, it was like a big wake-up call, um, yeah. especially being a immunocompromised physician. Um, I never wore masks or anything um, prior to COVID. Um, it just wasn't part of what we did. That being said, um, we did wear them sometimes. So in the hospital, you'll sometimes notice like um, signs put up outside of a patient's room for precautions. And these precautions are in there based off of what infection the patient might have. So mm -hmm. they may have a uh, they might have a precaution up called a contact precaution where you need to wear a gown and gloves, but no mask, or they'll need a droplet precaution, which is just wearing a mask, a gown and gloves. And then the, what COVID is, and the main one that came to mind to me before COVID was tuberculosis, mm -hmm. was airborne precautions. And you would have to wear an N95 mask and gown, gloves, and everything. So when certain infections you know, when a patient had certain infections, we wore the proper equipment for that. And I always followed that to a T. Um, I never was lax on that at all. It'll be interesting moving forward how I handle this if hospitals ever decide to allow no mask wearing. Now, granted, I live in the Northeast. And so the hospital I work at currently still has everyone wearing masks. I do not know if that's the case across the country. I can't say for sure if it is. Um, and I know the CDC, I think recently just put out a recommendation that they're, I think, leaning towards feeling it's no longer needed. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think you should quote me on that, but I do remember seeing that. And it like was a shock to me just because I've been wearing a mask at work all day, every day now since... COVID first began. So I don't have a good answer and I do not know what I'm going to do in the future. 
So when I got my transplant, it was just a, like, basically I went back to work after my transplant just a few months before COVID hit. And um, the recommendations for me now, keep in mind that I worked in an emergency room and ICU setting. So it was like, I was always around very sick people or potentially very sick people. You know, it's different than being in like an outpatient office. You don't, you're not basically you're a little more cautious in like the acute care setting. And so because of that, my, my recommendation from my transplant team at the time had been to mask up no matter what. And so I was actually wearing N95, at least a surgical mask, if not an N95 mask with a surgical mask, even before COVID. Um, and on top of that, I was very careful about, um, uh, like doing procedures on specific patients. So like, um, if possible, I would avoid intubating patients with TB or with COVID, obviously that wasn't always the case because at times I had to do what I had to do, but I was always extra careful about um, what infections people had and and doing procedures on them and being around them. And I also just, you know, in general, in medicine, uh, and, and Kobe would agree, we wash our hands a lot. We're taught to wash our hands, not only before entering a patient's room, but also after and in between and, and all the time. And so I, that, I, that's been, you know, one of the main things that I've always done, even before my transplant, just being extra careful and being extra mindful about the types of patients that you're around, and then wearing a mask and washing my hands often. And over the last two years, three years since my transplant and having gone back to work, I've obviously had infections here and there, but um, I tried my best to mitigate the risks as much as possible. Yeah, that's that's my answer is, you know, there's no specific 100% um, correct answer other than try your best to, to be careful. Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's one thing to be overcautious, which I think is fine if that works for you. I think on the yeah, other exactly. end of that is don't be reckless. Yep. Um, you know, I think overcautious is fine. Reckless, I would just say that's not fine. Um, I think it's really important to be smart, wash your hands, wear masks, especially wear masks if there's high levels of COVID around you. Um, that's kind of what um, brings me back to, I did look it up. The CDC has removed its universal guideline um, masking recommendations for hospitals. Oh, wow. Um, unless there's high levels of COVID in the area. And I think it's also, of course, up to the hospital's discretion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if my hospital removes mask wearing, I, again, I, I don't know how right in this moment, how I'm going to handle it. Um, I will say that I did get COVID. I don't know if that was in our previous episodes and that I did okay with it. Um, mm -hmm. I was only sick for like four days and I got over it, thankfully, pretty quickly. I think part of that is because I was vaccinated and I had made antibodies, mm -hmm. um, as we've talked about previously. And so I have a lot of faith in the vaccines. I just got the bivalent COVID vaccine as well, which I was very happy and excited to get. And I'm hoping that this will protect me through these, you know, further waves of COVID as we go along. COVID I don't think is as deadly as it once was, but it certainly is not fun to have. If you're immune compromised, you never know how severely ill you could get. Mm -hmm. um, long story short, be smart out there, use caution and don't be reckless. This is, you know, a valuable gift you've been given if you got the gift of organ transplant. Exactly. Oh, and one other thing that I want people to know, because a lot of people are like, you know, why would the hospital make you work if you're immunosuppressed? And it's like, just keep in mind that that some people are more comfortable with others about being around patients. And it doesn't necessarily mean that 
just because me and Kobe are comfortable with, you know, continuing patient care that everybody's the same. There are people who are going to be a little more careful and don't want to be in the patient setting. And I totally understand that. Definitely. Every person is unique. Me and Aline, thankfully, knock on wood, have done really well overall (laughs) since our transplant. Um, And we understand that that's not always the case. And so we are just two unique examples of post-transplant life. Um, And so everybody has to kind of do what's best for them. Exactly. Do you have another question ready? I do. It's how do you decide when it's time to contact your care team as a transplant patient by Chris from Instagram? This is a awesome question. And I think I want, you know, I'm interested to hear if me and you have different thought process on this, mm-hmm. given how different of a time frame we are since the transplant. Exactly. Um, so being over 10 years post-transplant now, I know it takes a lot for me to call my care team. And that I think has just because of over time, I've gotten very in tune to my body, very in tune to what symptoms I get if I'm very sick. For me, specifically a fever. If I don't have a fever, I am very low concerned. If I have a fever, to me, that warrants me calling my care team. I, again, knock on wood, um, being a heart transplant patient, have never had signs or symptoms of heart failure post-transplant, except for, you know, when I worked a few days in the medical ICU as a resident, um, sometimes I'll be on my feet for like 12 hours and I'll get some swelling in my legs Mm -hmm. and I'll come home and that'll go away when I put my legs up and I realize that that's just dependent edema, just meaning since I've been up all day, my blood kind of and fluid pooled in my legs. However, if I were to start having worsening shortness of breath on exertion or shortness of breath at rest, or I was having swelling in my legs that wasn't going away or chest pain, or my heart was racing, all of those would get me to call my care team. I just Mm -hmm. thankfully have not had instances of that yet. I've only been dealing post-transplant with infections. So I've had a few infections that have warranted me to call my care team. And that's, again, mostly with fever. Or um, when I got COVID, I just called them because I just wanted them to be aware. And then there was one time where I got a really bad stomach bug and I had a fever and I called them because I felt like I was getting really dehydrated and they wanted me to go to the hospital. and I don't <laughs> recommend this. I just have such a hatred for going to hospitals now. Um, <laughs> and this is just me being candid with the, you know, with everyone. And this is just because once you've lived there for six months, mm-hmm. you'll kind of do anything you can to not go back. And so I did wait a little bit longer and see if I got better before going in. And I did. And I thankfully was able to drink fluids and keep them down and felt much better. However, if I wasn't able to drink fluids or and keep fluids in, I would have gone to the hospital. Do as I say, not as I do. So if your <laughs> doctor tells you to go, I, I recommend going. Um, yeah. I'm just stubborn sometimes. Yeah, that's interesting to know. So I guess with me, you also have to keep in mind that me and Kobe have like different um, viewpoints on medicine just because of our field. So like I've seen the worst of the worst in every type of transplant patient from like You know, people having GI bugs, needing dialysis and having a cardiac arrest to like, you know, so sometimes I see like the extreme end of what infections and and medications and stuff can do to you. So I feel like my threshold um, with what I've seen and also how 
how just I'm just a couple years out of transplant, my threshold is a little bit lower. So I actually am pretty good about calling for most things. Now, with that being said, I usually, if I'm feeling unwell, so let's say like I have a headache, I usually, the first thing I do is check my vitals a couple of times. If anything is abnormal and I continue to feel a certain way, that's basically when I call my transplant team. I'm also uh, like the way, again, it kind of depends on your transplant team. Like if they want to be called for everything, or there's some that would rather just kind of know if things get a lot worse, but that's kind of the way that I've done it. So Two, two specific reasons would be one, if I'm vomiting to the point where like I can't keep my medications down, I let I definitely let them know. And then if I have any signs or symptoms and like uh, an abnormal set of vital signs, those for sure I will call. Everything else I kind of like feel out and see um, how I do throughout the day, throughout the next couple days. And then, and then I call if I need to. But with that being said, um, I think especially if you're early out of transplant, early being like the first few years, as opposed to being like 10, 20 years out of transplant, um, you should have a low threshold. And I think that's okay. The transplant teams are used to people calling them for anything. Like even if you have symptoms of a UTI and, you know, you just want to make sure that the, the medication that your primary care gave you doesn't interact with your transplant medications. Like honestly, any reason you need to, you can always call them. And I feel like you know, they're used to getting phone calls about a lot of random stuff and you should never feel bad. But I do think that every person is different and, you know, their their threshold to call is is going to be different. Agreed. And I think it's interesting that I like try not to call. Yeah. Um, but then on the opposite side of this, once I become a transplant physician, I'm going to want my patients to call. To call you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's how I see it too. Is like, sometimes like I'll see patients who come into the ER and they're like, Oh, I didn't really want to come in and in my head. I'm like, Oh my God, you definitely like should have come in earlier. Or like, so, so yeah, it, sometimes it's it's better to just have a lower threshold and it, it don't ever feel like you're bothering a doctor or nurse because this is their job. So that leads me to another question, which sure. we got on Instagram and it's one that we don't have good answers to, but, but which is why I want to get to it. Cause I think it's a good example of what I want to say, which is one of our Instagram followers asked, she'd like to know where to find good info on valve replacement techniques. And if there are any new improvements, and this is kind of what I was getting to is this is why you should just talk to your doctor. I think it's really easy to go online and find things that are written about certain things. Or if you go to social media, you'll find posts and you'll find people talking about things. And even this podcast, me and Aline will give our recommendations on things, but you should talk to the doctors who specialize in this is the big picture here. So me and Aline are not valve specialists, although I know a lot about valve replacement. It is still not a specialty of mine and it's not going to be a specialty of mine. Um, you should be talking to interventional cardiologists or cardiothoracic surgeons who who do the procedures. And I think it's very important to hear it from the physician themselves because I think they're very good at putting it into terms that make sense to the patient, going over the risks and benefits of it. And it makes it way easier than just reading about it where they may use terms and things that don't make sense, or they may be misguiding you because they have a, a secondary motive. Yeah. And also keep in mind that like questions like this, like, like, where should I get my valve replaced or what's a good valve replacement? Like so much of it depends on 
the patient. Like it depends on what your symptoms are. It depends on if you want a repair or a replacement or what your current situation is, if you've had one before. So that's why it's just best to talk to your doctor about these things. We want to say thank you to everyone who's asked us questions. We really enjoy getting to see feedback on our social media um, platforms. And we had some other questions and things that we are not going to get to tonight because we want to devote entire episodes to. So thank you to everyone who asked these future episodes that we did not get to tonight are going to include speaking hopefully with our loved ones at some point about Mm -hmm. what it's like to date, marry, live with uh, (laughs) uh, an organ transplant recipient. Um, We're going to discuss what it's like to meet donor families. Um, I just met mine. So we'll talk about that. And I have never met mine. um, And so we'll kind of talk about how my approach to that and, and kind of how it's unfortunate sometimes, but we'll, we'll compare and contrast. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we're going to also Hopefully still, we had planned this way back in time and we never got to it, um, but we still hope to get this done in the future is speak with a friend uh, who is a organ transplant recipient over in England. Um, mm-hmm. So we can compare and contrast how things are done across the pond. And lastly, we have some collaborative uh, plans in the future of organ transplant recipients who kind of do um, outreach, nonprofits, and things of that nature in terms of giving back to the organ transplant community. Yeah, so it's going to be a good season, and we're excited to go to be doing this again. And lots, lots more ahead, we hope. Yeah. So thanks for listening to both sides of the stethoscope. Remember, if you have any questions or comments or anything at all, feel free to email us at both sides of the stethoscope at gmail.com. You can always um, also follow us or message us on social media. We have both a Twitter account and an Instagram account with both sides of the stethoscope. So yeah, we're excited about the future of this podcast. And thank you all for continuing to listen to us. Yes, thank you so much. Please like the episodes, subscribe to the podcast, rate us five stars, all that (laughs) stuff. It really helps this keep going and helps it spread um, and, and tell all your friends about it. 